0: Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Healthy Debates, part of a series of podcasts brought to you by the UK's best-selling women's wellbeing magazine, Healthy. I'm your host today, and Editorial Director, Ellie Hughes. On this podcast, we're talking to Gabrielle Jackson, author of Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies. Having suffered from the chronic pain condition, endometriosis, for 14 years, Gabrielle started to wonder why we, and her doctors, still knew so little about it. This led her into an in-depth investigation into the topic which concluded that medicine systematically ignores or sidelines women who are by far the most common sufferers of chronic pain conditions and the worrying realisation that almost everything we know about human biology comes from the study of men. Gabrielle is here today to talk to us about her own experience and discoveries. If you want to read her article do check out the latest edition of Healthy Magazine which you can pick up in your local Holland and Barrett store and on selected newsstands across the country. Gabrielle, hi. Welcome to The Healthy Podcast. Uh, You're here today because you've written a new book called Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies which is called on the front of the book, a brilliant blood-drenched page-turner. A fantastic description. Uh, and the back of the book calls it a timely and powerful look at how our culture treats the pain and suffering of women, which is really what it's kind of all about. But it all started from your own personal experiences with endometriosis, um, kind of way back when you were quite a young girl. Can you... Kind of expand on that. Tell me all about that and how it all started.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I had really bad period pain from a young age, from the time I was about 14. And, um, you know, I was the in the sick bay every month, you know, mum picking me up. and um, But no one ever suggested that that was because something might be wrong with me. And um, But I also had these... Um, periods of really incredible fatigue and when I was 16 I ended up being diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome but still no one linked my period and the period pain with that with that fatigue and not until I was about 23 I uh, you know I had been going to my GP for years with this pain and she just kept saying you know some women have bad periods put up with it look, that's this isn't normal. This is I don't see anyone around me suffering, at being totally incapacitated for a few days every month. Um, and I got referred to a gynecologist and so I got diagnosed when I was 23 and I had a laparoscopy and I felt better for a long time. But I didn't really know that all these other symptoms I had were related to endometriosis. You know, I... The fatigue kind of would come and go, and I had an irritable bowel, and I had really bad back pain and leg pain, um, especially pain down the front of my right leg and, um, hip pain and, uh, headaches, and I would feel dizzy and kind of faint sometimes. And it wasn't until kind of 15 years later that I went to a conference in Sydney and f- discovered that All these symptoms are not random. They're not because I'm a hypochondriac. They're all very common symptoms of endometriosis. And that was when I became really motivated to write about it for The Guardian.
0: And that was because you just thought, well, if I don't know all this and I've had this condition for so long...
1: Exactly. ...then I guess
0: other people don't know
1: Yeah, Yeah. Exactly. And, And the conference was actually put on by a mother and a daughter and the daughter had been diagnosed with endometriosis and they just couldn't find any information, any really good information, and they kept receiving contradictory advice from, you know, one doctor told... Um, the woman, Sylvia, to go and have a baby because that's the, she wouldn't, if she didn't have a baby now, you know, she was 21 still at university, she would never be able to have one. And then another doctor told her that was absolutely rubbish and not to listen to it. So what they did is they just got, did their research, found kind of the best doctors and researchers and physiotherapists who were really knowledgeable in endometriosis and brought them into a room and just invited patients to come. And learn about their disease. And amazingly, (laughs) this is a really revolutionary thing. And it was the first time a kind of a patient-centered conference like that had happened. And it was really emotional because, as I said, because I had all these weird things wrong with me that... um, you know, you couldn't quite pinpoint. I'd always kind of thought of myself as being really a bit unable to cope with life very well, a bit weak, a bit flaky. Was it quite isolating, I'm imagining? Yeah, and... It was uh, because you don't want to be the person complaining all the time Mm. because people will get bored of that. It's really boring. And so you, you internalize a lot of it and you, and you try not to complain. And, you know, when you, when you don't show up to social events, you make an excuse up, you know, because you don't want to be that boring person who's sick all the time. I didn't want to be a sick person, you know, I wanted to be fun. And, um, it's, to to be in that conference and to hear all those things. Like I think the first I started crying when one of the researchers said that women with endometriosis are 180 times more likely to be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome than other women. And I... uh, had been told by someone at university that chronic fatigue syndrome was made up, Mm -hmm. and that was just for weekly. that's still quite
0: commonly believed,
1: I think. Exactly. And I became really ashamed of that diagnosis, and I never told anyone. And then to be there and hear that, I was just, as I said, I was just reduced to tears. And then I heard about the bowel problems being really typical, and then I heard about the back pain and even the leg pain. And I wasn't at all unusual. It wasn't that I was just weak or a hypochondriac. I was actually quite a typical yeah. woman with endometriosis. And that uh, I remember ringing my mum after the conference and trying to say to her, I'm not a hypochondriac mum, I'm not. But I couldn't because I was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And, you know, just because that was so powerful, I, uh, you know, I had a platform as a journalist. And so I really wanted to... Make sure other women knew they weren't just weak and flaky and second rate, but, but these, these, these other symptoms that never get talked about were really common symptoms and there were ways to manage them and to live better.
0: Yeah. So this is what led to you writing about it in The Guardian yes. and the overwhelming response from women around the world.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It was so overwhelming. Um, we put a call out and said, you know, tell us about your experience getting diagnosed and, and and we'll publish the results. But within a couple of hours we had like more than 600 people yeah, from wow. everywhere and we were like, okay, we have to shut it because we can't publish <laughs> 700 people's stories. But I did read them all and what really struck me was that no matter what country the person was from. Because we had Russia, Bolivia, Nepal, Thailand, South, all the South American countries, you know, European countries, the US, Canada, Australia. We had people from everywhere. But it didn't matter what country they were from. It didn't matter how old they were. It didn't matter how rich or poor they were. Women were just being told the same thing, that they were hypochondriacs, that they were too concerned about their health, that they were a type A personality. Some were even called hysterical by their doctors. Um, a lot of people were told you have to get pregnant or you have to have a hysterectomy. They're your only two options, which is not true. And I, so even though that you know, The Guardian got journalists in, in Britain and the US and Australia to work on this investigation, Rather than be the end for me, it was kind of the beginning. It just raised more questions. Yeah.
0: So I wonder at this point we should just maybe pause, and if you can explain endometriosis to any of our listeners that don't really know about it, because it's you know it's no way spoken about as much as it should be, given the amount exactly. of people of women who do. Yeah,
1: one have in this ten condition. women yeah. have the yeah.
0: condition. Yeah, and in uh, fact, my husband found this out because it was on the radio this week. He couldn't believe it. Oh and really. I was like, Yeah, I've been telling you this. But, you know, even quite well-informed people who feel like they're abreast of things still don't know those kind of stats. Well, when
1: we did the investigation in 2015, it wasn't that long ago, some of our health reporters had never heard of endometriosis. Wow. Oh, my God. 176 million women worldwide. And, And it was called, in a lot of the literature, the silent disease. And it's like, well, actually, what we discovered is that it... The women with it aren't silent. Yeah. It's just that no one's listening to yeah. them. So it's when the um, endometrium, which is the lining of the womb, grows outside the womb, in most often in the pelvic cavi- cavity, and it can create scar tissue. It can, if adhesions can form, which means that organs stick together. So in my case, my uterus was stuck to my rectum, and the two ovaries were stuck to the. Uterus and that was stuck to the pelvic sidewall. So in, in in essence, all these organs are supposed to float freely in the pelvis, but they're all stuck together, and that scar tissue creates inflammation and pain. And um, sometimes it's uh, it's found in the lungs and diaphragm. They're now starting to discover that it's much more common in the diaphragm than they ever knew because it was just going undiagnosed. And as I said, yeah, it causes inflammation, pain, um, and sometimes infertility.
0: And so this kind of led you to really, you know, were saying about how it's not the silent disease, just that no one was actually listening to these women. So this then kind of took you back in time to look at the history of endometriosis and also how women are are treated now and have been treated kind of historically by the medical establishment. Because what
1: I discovered was that endometriosis wasn't actually an outlier, that it was actually completely typical of any Mm. illness that mainly affects women. And that... I found that really shocking. So you weren't going out with that agenda. You weren't no. going out
0: with this feminist agenda. That was literally just
1: Absolutely not. What I came just through. wanted to know yeah. why it took me going to this conference put on by a mum and her daughter to find out the kind of the truth about the disease I had. And um and that uh, and so I just was follow, you know, like a journalist does. You just Ask one question and then just follow the story, yeah, you basically. Just follow yeah. the story, yeah. and um, and that's that. Just led me to this really shocking discovery that we really medicine really doesn't know much about female biology. Women have always been considered um, men with wounds, and. So they studied the womb a little bit, not as much as you would think, and then women were just men with otherwise. So they'd only ever really studied male biology. They'd only studied male bodies. Most clinical trials were done on men. Even clinical trials involving whether estrogen can help prevent heart attacks were only done on men. It's crazy. It's actually quite absurd. And, And even male rodents and male cell lines and... I just was really shocked that that had happened. And what I discovered through the history of studying medicine was that medicine had kind of always known that women have these ailments and these kind of pain things that men don't have, but nobody really cared about it. They just said, oh, that's just part of being a woman. She's kind of... In pain and emotional, and and that was kind of used as a justification for her not to be able to participate in the workforce or in public life. And it was justification for women to stay in the home, and and be becoming pregnant, becoming a good wife and mother was always the prescription to fix things. You know, oh, if you just get pregnant and fulfil your duty as a woman, then you'll be better. And that's still being told to women today.
0: Yeah. So this is what you call the kind of bikini deal or the reproductive kind of discourse that that's how women are seen in terms of their breasts and their their, (laughs) wounds, basically, and, you know, genital area. And so that's led to things that you said kind of in terms of our understanding of heart attacks and Mm. heart disease has been completely skewed towards... How men exhibit symptoms.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know. And still today, just a study last year, 2018, found that women with having severe heart attacks were half as likely to be treated properly when they presented to hospitals, big tertiary hospitals, it was done in, mind you, and twice as likely to die within six months of discharge. So this is despite the fact that for a good 10 years now, medicine has understood that women present with slightly different symptoms to men and that they really needed to um, improve the work on treating heart disease and heart attacks in women. Yeah. So what do you put this down to? Because you're, you're actually quite um,
0: open-minded, really. You don't really judge people or condemn them for this kind of male bias.
1: No, I think doctors have a really hard job, and I don't think that we're in this situation because doctors hate women. It's the system that they work in. So, you know, this idea that doctors don't listen to women isn't unique to medicine, you know, a Society doesn't listen to women. This is why we had the Me Too movement. I still remember men saying to me, have you ever been sexually harassed? I'm like, yes, <laughs> I've told you 45 times. Like, how have you not heard this? Right. Um, and so I think, you know, this is a society-wide problem. So when women go to the doctor and they say, oh, I've got headaches and nausea and I've got this pain and and to a doctor it just sounds like whinging and what are all these like seven different symptoms that are seemingly unrelated and what they don't understand is that they're not unrelated and the reason they don't know that they are related is because they haven't been taught that because medicine doesn't really understand women's illnesses and so they fill knowledge gaps with these um what what researchers call the hysteria narratives. So where there's a knowledge gap and where they can't fix someone, they start to just see them as hysterical and start to blame them for their own for their own illness. And so I'll give the example in endometriosis. As I said, still a lot of doctors, even very caring doctors, don't know that endometriosis causes. Um, sexual pain and anxiety and poor sleep and nausea and dizziness and headaches. So a woman comes and she's like, oh, I've got this terrible period pain. I've got abdominal pain because I've got endometriosis. You know, the doctor might fix that that period pain. She might have surgery and, you know, feel a bit better and then go on the marina or something. And so her periods are a lot better. But then she comes back and she's still got the nausea and the headaches and the fatigue and the kind of feeling unwell. And they think, well, you know, you had the surgery, you should be better now. It must be something you're doing. You, You know, you must like being sick, you know, and that's what happens. And that is, as I say, because they don't have the knowledge, but they're not trained to think about the male bias of knowledge in medicine. And that's something I think has to change. And that's society-wide, as you've said. Yeah. So this kind of led
0: you to, what I found interesting, this idea of pain, actually, and rethinking how we frame pain as something in its own right, Mm. rather than something that must be caused specifically by, you know, problem X or problem Y.
1: Uh, And still, I think even though medicine acknowledges it has a problem with chronic pain, it also acknowledges that doctors are really ill equipped to treat chronic pain and um you know throughout the history of medicine pain was always believed to be the result of some injury mm-hmm. tissue damage or surgery or a broken bone or you know cut finger and a burn we the, medicine is very good at understanding that pain and that's called acute pain and chronic pain is pain that um occurs for more than three months. And still, for a long time, they thought uh, that it was an original injury, and then the pain has somehow lingered on. And what they now know is that chronic pain can be a disease state in itself and it may not be the cause of any original injury or accident. And I think some of, one of the reasons that endometriosis, um, is believed as an illness and, um, gets talked about a lot is because there is a physical aspect to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can do a surgery and open up and have a look and cut out some lesions and, and so they understand, they can see something on a test. But most chronic pain can't be seen. can't be seen in an ultrasound. It yeah. can't be seen on an MRI. It can't be seen on an x-ray. So this is things like chronic fatigue syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the really interesting thing is that you know, there's these 10 overlapping pain conditions that are commonly, m- mostly occur in women, but men get some of them. Like Men get fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, obviously. And, um, but once you have one, you start to accumulate more. And so there must be some common mechanism happening in the immune system, in the central nervous system that is uh, causing all these symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the really interesting thing. And I, 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 I worry that by focusing on, on endometriosis, because, that physical aspect of it exists that people think if you don't have endo then you're fine whereas a study by gynaecologists in Australia found that actually any woman who has really bad period pain has an average of eight and a half other symptoms with or without endometriosis. Having the endometriosis didn't make a difference to how many other symptoms they had. Just the fact of having the period pain meant that there were eight and a half other symptoms out of a pool of 14, which are the really common things, fatigue, irritable bowel, painful bladder, jaw pain, and and all the other things I said, dizziness, headaches, um, sexual pain, vulval pain, things like that. And so um, what she's realized, and she gained that knowledge from, as I said, collecting the symptoms of women for 19 years patient-led information, basically. She's discovered more about endometriosis than any person in a lab just by listening to her patients.
0: How revolutionary. (laughs) And then you make a very compelling kind of economic case, actually, for why, you know, these hysterical women should actually be taken seriously because the economic consequences, if that's the way you want to be convinced by an argument, are quite significant Mm. of ignoring people with chronic um, pain conditions. Exactly.
1: So a lot of the time... Women can't fully participate in their own lives. You know, they can't work Mm full-time or or even work at all. They lose jobs because they take sick leave. The cost to the health system is quite high because often women end up in hospital, you know, a few times a year because the pain gets so severe. It's a big cost to the health system and there's a huge personal financial cost, you know. I, I... worked out that I spent $50,000 in kind of five years at one point because a lot of the treatments that are really effective aren't available um, on the NHS or in Australia under Medicare. So you end up funding your own treatments. So what kind of thing would that be? So um, with endometriosis, I went to a private gynaecologist because... Um Not all gynecologists are mm-hmm. experts in endo, and you can have really dodgy surgery and you and you could not get all the endometriosis in there. Um, and therefore you know you might have to go back and have surgery another time, but every time you have surgery, more scar tissue is created yeah. and therefore more pain. So having multiple surgeries is really can end up causing more pain. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I had one surgery that was done really well. Well, I had one when I was twenty-three and one when I was thirty-eight. So you know, it was—I've um, had two. Uh, pelvic physiotherapy has been—I oh, cannot tell you what a relief. I um, actually had a skiing accident when I was nineteen and fractured a, um, my sacrum, mm-hmm. and I always thought my back pain was because of that. And so I'd been going for twenty years to physios telling them about this sacrum injury, and and no one linked it. No one could. Yeah fix me, basically. And then I went to a pelvic physiotherapist and she touched a muscle and I was like, ah! And that was the most relief from pain I've ever had. It was really effective. But pelvic physiotherapists, uh, I think there's a few more of them in London, not sure (laughs) about the rest of the UK. But in in Sydney, there's not many of them and they're very expensive and Medicare doesn't cover it. So um, it ends up costing quite a lot of money. Um, And... Uh, the other things, you know, the pill I take isn't available under our Medicare system. It's, I've tried every pill there is and they don't work and I've tried the Marina, You know, I've tried everything and finally I get some relief, but that's $100 for three months' worth. So, okay. and, and you're always going for tests. There's a pelvic ultrasound, which was $300. Once I had to have an MRI, which was $800. You know, these things mm-hmm. just add up and that's what women end up doing. I've spoken to a lot of British women who end up going to private clinics because they can't get any answers on the NHS, which is, you know, so busy. They don't have the time to really work with chronic pain patients and they do take a lot of time Mm. because, as I say, there's a lot of different symptoms going on and, you know, Really busy GPS don't often have forty five minutes to sit down and talk with a patient about all the things that are going wrong and what their priorities. Be like, like ten minutes, I think, with
0: an exactly. average GP, through exactly. no fault of their
1: own, but yeah, exactly, no fault of their yeah. own, and it's the same in Australia. And, and and this is the other thing: it's the way our our medical systems are set up that is really hostile to treating women with with pain conditions. It's the doctors who do it and do it well are usually getting paid much less than their colleagues because there's actually a disincentive to doing this kind of medicine.
0: And you also make that point in terms of research as well. It's very hard to get research Mm. uh, funding for chronic pain um, conditions because, again, they don't kind of meet the easy criteria of
1: measurable success. Exactly, because we don't know enough about chronic pain to have these, like... Are very strict markers which is how research grants are given you know we will test so many patients and they'll all will test their blood pressure and you know their some kind of kidney marker thing if you know you just kidney disease and then we'll tell you all the results but in chronic pain we know so little that we know two patients are alike mm. and that there was a big report in America um, that was commissioned under Obama when Obamacare got put through and it was called Relieving Pain in America. And part of that was to look at the state of chronic pain knowledge and care and make recommendations for the improvement of how to deal with chronic pain. And one of the things they said was we have to totally change the way that research money is granted for pain research because it The grants just keep getting knocked back because they don't meet the kind of very strict criteria. So that has been recognised, but as far as I can tell, nothing much has changed. Mm -hmm. The money's still not flowing to to these kind of conditions. And because they're so different, you know, opioids don't work. They now know that opioids actually make chronic pain worse. So if you continue to take opioids, which do give you some relief in the short term, will actually just make that pain go longer and longer and longer. And then there's addiction issues. So pharmaceutical companies aren't really investing because they're like, we don't know what to do. These patients are too difficult. So when, you know, it it is going to take, I think, government policy putting money into this research for anything to change. Yeah. And you also
0: talk about the kind of social stigma around sufferers of these Mm. conditions, which might you know, it has been a kind of um, obstacle to getting government funding because they're not taken seriously and they
1: tend to be... Exactly. They're, um, you know, they're the difficult patients, quote, unquote, or what in medicine is called heart sink patients. And they're called heart sink because when the doctor sees them, their heart sinks, they're like, oh, it's her again. Her again, again. yeah. What am I going to do? And, um, you know, one gynecologist said to me they ring up a lot and they cry, and they, and you know, the, the staff don't like them, the nurses don't like them. They're difficult, mm. and it's no wonder, you know, because they're in pain, and people aren't believing them, and there's no good treatment, and that's really hard. And you, and and we know that pain causes depression and anxiety, and that depression and anxiety can make pain perception worse. So it's a really tricky cycle. But research has shown that people who have a trusting relationship with their doctor, actually feel less pain. So it's just the act of having a doctor who believes you and is trying and working with you to improve your life yeah. is much better, is is a first step at least. Yeah, and you say
0: as well a lot of these kind of patients tend to look at alternative therapies, mm. some of which I think are good and have a background, others of which might be a bit more wacky and kind yeah. of out there. But it's that idea of just being listened to Exactly. Can really help,
1: uh, yeah. I think I read some research... Um, where people using alternative medicine didn't even think the treatments worked, but they just had someone sit down and listen to them for an hour, which, you know, no doctor has an hour to sit down to listen with a patient. So I think that medicine really has to look at at the women they've lost to the wellness industry. And the reason the wellness industry is attracting all these women is because they are acknowledging their real lives. They talk about the pain. They talk about the fatigue. They talk about the kind of mind fog and in a way that women relate to. And medicine doesn't talk about women's illnesses in a way that is relatable to many women. Um, And so I think that's, you know, I, I, I think on one hand, you know, whatever works for you, go for it. On the other hand, there are some really dodgy people out there Mm. who are taking advantage of women in pain and charging really a lot of money for treatments that either don't work or sometimes are even harmful.
0: Mm. So on an individual level, kind of
1: here and now, in the
0: situation we're in now, what would you say to someone who has got endo? How can they help themselves?
1: What can they do? This is a really hard question because I think on the one hand, there's lots we can do as patients. We can learn about our bodies. We can you know, read and, and try to understand what's going on and a lot of us can doctor shop until we find a GP who listens to us and who we trust and um, I think having that that trusting relationship with a GP is really important. But there are a lot of women who can't do that, who don't have the maybe education or time or... Um, the confidence, I Confidence guess. Yeah. to doctor shop or to learn about What's going on in their body, and and for some women, challenging their doctor will just backfire on them. As uh, that happens, especially to women of colour or other disadvantaged women um, in Australia, it's really prevalent in Aboriginal women. Mm. Um, they die at much higher rates and get treated much. So, what worse. do you mean backfire on them? They will just. So, if you give say I don't accept this, I want another doctor. You'll just be. Treat it as though you're very aggressive, and no one will see you. You're considered a drug seeker, um, and you, you know, if you live in a place where there's only one hospital and it's small, you know, they won't treat you properly when you come in. You'll just be dismissed, and um, so you know, I I do think that we can be more confident and learn about our bodies and go in and not take no for an answer. And I've actually had a couple of women write to me after reading my book and saying, to, to say, I went I went to my doctor, my, both were male doctors, I went back and I said, this isn't what you've told me isn't right. And they had all their symptoms, you know, they'd written down all their symptoms and they had my book. And the doctors are actually really receptive. They're like, oh, well, okay, let's work together. So that's only two examples. But they said I hadn't even really told them all my symptoms because I didn't know they were all related. But just the fact they went with lots of information mm. both about themselves and about the disease did did affect the way they were treated. So it's about being as
0: informed as you can be, trusting your own experience of your own body, yeah. I guess, which we often don't. And like you say, just kind of campaigning for another doctor if you don't get...
1: Yeah, listen to. I mean, first, but this happened time to time me so. last year. I went to an emergency department in pain, and they basically just sent me away and said, "Go see your gynecologist." And I was so angry, and I tried to be rational, and I tried to be in for you know. But the more I kind of said that, that I knew about my disease, the more they thought I was just a hysterical woman. Okay. And it's <laughs> so yes. it's, I it, it, we I think women can lobby and demand change, but. As individuals, there's not that much we can do f- for the most part,
0: sadly. So my next question was going to be exactly that, kind of on a kind of societal level or a governmental level. What what can we do, kind of big picture, to change things?
1: Well, look, I think the good news is that, you know, 50 years ago breast cancer was, like, treated like this. It was a career women's disease. It's because you delayed childbirth. There was no information. There was lots of myths and women were treated really badly. But... um You know, because breast cancer was deadly and it affected a lot of young women, um, if they, once they recovered, they had a lot of energy and they campaigned. And the reason we have so much knowledge about breast cancer now and money and research is because women campaigned for a better deal. So I think we can do that. That is something we can do. I think that women with need to work together with doctors, because there are a lot of doctors out there who, who are desperate for change themselves, who can see the problems, but who don't know how to change medicine from within inside. So I think doctors and patients and, and people, you know, like us, the media can work together to demand a better deal. Okay. Right. And we've seen that work in the past. So yeah. I, I do have hope. So you do have hope. Yeah, really. Eventually. I, I started the book Very Angry and feeling quite desperate but I just spoke to so many great doctors and researchers who really want things to change and who are just looking for people who can help them and um, just the way the conversation has really picked up in the last couple of years gives me confidence that people are starting to listen to these stories.
0: Okay, great. That's good news. Let's. We'll keep com- campaigning our end. You know, you keep yeah. doing your thing and hopefully something will happen before too long. Yes, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Great. Thank-, thank you, Gabrielle. Thank, thank you so much for coming in Thanks today. Thanks for having me. It's been really interesting. Um, slightly maddening, as you say, but also yeah. really interesting. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Great. Thank you. That was episode 14 of Healthy Debates. If you liked what you heard, remember you can pick up the latest edition of Healthy Magazine in your local Holland and Barrett store and on selected newsstands across the country. Gabrielle's book, Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies, is on sale now. Or do head over to our website, healthy-magazine.co.uk for more information. And please feel free to subscribe to our regular podcasts on your podcast app and give us a rating. That was episode 14 of the Healthy Debates podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.